All right, good afternoon. So I'm Catherine Lambrecht, Greater Midwest Foodways, because the topic today is Chicago. And by the way, I have a fish t-shirt on today in case anybody's, I try to have relevant attire for the occasion. It's a uh, smelt. Um, not that, I don't know if smelt was served at that restaurant. Um, I would like to point out, I was recently at the Midwestern History meeting up in uh, Grand Rapids. And uh, Cynthia Clampett, one of our members, she's not here today. She was here yesterday, but I was not the introducer. Um, she did her talk on pork and and corn, and it was really cool to see all these people in the audience f scribbling every darn piece of information she put out there. It was really, I think, heartwarming for her. I also have picked up a future speaker, but that will be next spring, on a World War II-related issue in Marengo, Illinois, which is in McHenry County. But that's for the future. Um, so our program today is Margaret Carney. What a gal. And what a humorist. We, I mean, I'm looking forward. I already know I'm going to laugh. Not this one. Really? <laughs> the butter talk will be funny. But the, but the other one, I still remember, I still see in my mind's eye that breast goblet from the last talk. <laughs> wow. Never saw anything quite like that. Anyway, Margaret is from the International Dinnerware Museum, and I know there's board members here, so if I blow the title, I apologize. But it will be right, correct in the write-up. And I'd like to introduce Margaret, who will sort of introduce herself. Okay. So I'm gonna show you all these papers here. We're gonna be here for days, days. You'll know too much about, no, I'm actually not going to do all of it, but, um, but I am going to hold my notes by this little light because I'm gonna be quoting um, articles and things like that and I don't wanna uh, mess them up too much. And it is the International Museum of Dinnerware Design, um, but we don't care what word order you use. <laughs> As long as you get the concept of it. Anyway, I'm really happy to be here, and I'm happy to talk about the Well of the Sea, actually, where it used to be in Chicago. I gave uh, a similar talk, a preliminary version, and I should say this is a work in progress. Until I do some more research, it's not going um, to be published or, or anything else. And I don't have copyright permission on some images, so I won't be publishing them until I figure all of those things out. But um, I'm excited to be here, and uh, do I have to say something more about myself? Um, I'm, I'm the director. I'm director of the Dinnerware Museum, and I really have a passion for good food. I'm not a great cook, but I like to eat good food, and I don't care if I get that in a restaurant or someone makes it for me. Um, and occasionally, I'll make something nice, but. Uh, the Well of the Sea, I will uh, ramble for one second. I ate in the Well of the Sea. Did anybody else ever eat in the Well of the Sea? Yes? Yes. I want to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> um, I ate there in the 60s with my parents who had already eaten at the Well of the Sea once, and I will tell my experience as I go through here, along with somebody else's who I found online who had also eaten at the Well of the Sea when they were a child. I was a teenager, so um, I de debate whether because I didn't like seafood too much when I was that age, so I'm wondering because the menu said if you don't like seafood, we can get you something from the porterhouse, um, and um, so I'm guessing I maybe didn't even eat seafood, but I don't remember that. I remember other aspects of it, but 
the Well of the Sea, um, let's go actually look at a picture. So this is from, it says on there where it's from. It's a cover of a menu. I actually found that image twice that I bought on uh, eBay. One was a menu cover, but the other one was a cover for a photograph of some ladies I'll show later on who were dining in the Well of the Sea. Um, so the Well of the Sea was a, an acclaimed seafood restaurant you all know the location at 112 West Randolph, northwest corner of Randolph and Clark. And Bill and I, when we were uh, Friday, when we came in on the train, we walked from there to our hotel at the Knickerbocker. And we made a point of going by that intersection to see what building was on there. And there was this kind of awful atrium. Yeah, not really a gem. <laughs> really? Oops. Oh, sorry for the preservationists here. Um, <laughs> anyway, I would have rather seen the, the Sherman House there myself. But anyway, the hotel dates back to 1844. And I'm not going to talk about the hotel's history. Uh, but the iteration, there were like four iterations of it. And the one that relates to the Well of the Sea and the Sherman House is between 1911 and uh, 1973. But it was, you all know it was, a, I'm preaching to the choir here, but it was a fantastic hotel, and I probably have a postcard of it. We'll go right to that, um, showing the Well of the Sea down below. There's a there's signage, I think. If there's not, it'll be on the next picture. But anyway, uh, inside the Well of the Sea, I'm going back for one second to show you the cover of the menu because I want you to have this uh, Richard Copy uh, painting embedded in your brain because you'll see it throughout uh, all the well of the sea images and things. But this is a menu cover from the early 1950s, 1950 yeah, exactly actually. Uh, but inside the uh, College Inn was a, an odd thing. I found a postcard when I was looking for images of interior things and so this was not in the well of the sea, okay? They didn't have a skating rink but it was inside the nearby uh, the College Inn, which is where the Well of the Sea was located. So it dates to 1918, and it wasn't until 1948 that we got the Well of the Sea, so quite a few years passed uh, before we, we saw that. And this I was happy to find. I don't know how many of you troll uh, things on eBay that you're looking for, but there was a time period where I went looking every day for things under Sherman House and Hotel Sherman and things, trying to find interesting things. And one day I came across this original... Uh, it's a press release photograph. It has the original sticker on the back of it uh, that says that, um, what does it say? It says, Chicago, flown to, this is dated 12-28-48. So it's one verification about when the Well of the Sea opened besides five other ways it's been verified now. Flown to Chicago for consumption at opening of the Well of the Sea new seafood restaurant in Hotel Sherman here. Various denizens of the deep are welcomed at airport here. Examining the seafood are Pat Hoy, assistant to the president of the Sherman, a well mermaid, and an airline stewardess, Betty Shiner. So I was really excited because I think if a picture is worth a thousand words, this is certainly uh, several thousand words worth of what you can do to pose people with uh, live seafood. So, and then there's another confirmation in uh, Francois Pope's uh, 1955 Gourmet Dining Guide, Chicagoland's Top Restaurant, where they confirmed that it came into existence on Dece in December 1948, and then also in the Today with Woman column in the Chicago Daily Tribune on December 31st, 1948, they told all about the dinner party that Ernie Byfield, who I'll get to in a minute, was throwing. Um, 
And then this one actually does show the signage for the Well of the Sea around 1950. So um, I'm going to do a couple of sidebars. And the other reason I'm going to kind of try to stick to my notes is because otherwise I'll get off on some tangent and you will be sorry that you can never drag me back to my point. So in uh, August 11th, 1948, in the issue of the Chicago Tribune, there was an article where they were kind of poking fun that Ernie Byfield, who I'll describe, the hotelier and restaurateur, um, was going, they thought he was going to open a seafood restaurant. So this is six months before the restaurant actually opened. And they, they were joking that it was going to be called Davy Jones's Locker. And, and then Byfield, because he was such a big shot back then, he responded, uh, not saying it wasn't, there wasn't going to be a seafood restaurant, but saying that it wasn't going to be Davy Jones's Locker. Um, and then, oddly enough, and I wouldn't even tell you this, except for, in uh, this is Crane's sketchbook from about 1952. There's 48 pages of ideas for your bathrooms, kitchens, and utility rooms. And in one wall of, of the bathroom here is the, you should recognize it already, the menu cover, the Richard Copy um, image from the well of the sea, and he's making a joke up at the top that Davy Jones would even appreciate this. So it kind of brings full circle. But it does tell you, if this, all of this was happening in uh, uh, important, <laughs> important publications like this where they're trying to sell you uh, bathroom fixtures and things. But also it's in the Tribune that this little back and forth thing about from Ernie Byfield says this and so on. So it tells you that it's, it's more important than just a, a trivial thing at the time. So one of the things that attracted me the most about the Well of the Sea was that it wasn't just for people like myself, who's an art historian um, and a ceramic historian, but it's also for the people that are culinary historians. It's for the people that love uh, good architecture, for the interior design people, the people that like mid-century dinnerware, which I'll show probably towards the end of my talk. Um, but it's kind of for everybody, so everybody's got a finger in it, and, and at the time there were restaurant reviews and things in interior magazines showing the interiors of the uh, buildings, so it's really got something um, for everybody, and I'm going to try to cover that in the next couple of minutes here. I will not go on till 3 o'clock because I know there's goodies in the back that are well-of-the-sea restaurants that the Chicago culinary historians have have nicely fixed for us. And one of the other things that interested me, which I'll get to in a couple minutes, is there was even a doctor. This might be something, if you know all about the Well of the Sea, there was even a doctor that was interested in the Well of the Sea because of the black lights that were used in the restaurant. So now I'll tell you about the black lights, but we'll see if we have a better image. So this image, uh, I don't know where it came from. I found it on the internet, and I wish there were more of them like it. But this shows you in 1952 what the restaurant looks like. And one of the things I discovered in my research is that the Well of the Sea, it was lit by black light. That's the thing I really clearly remember from eating there. There were no other lights in it. So here the waiter or the server seems to be using a flashlight to illuminate the menu. And indeed, the menus didn't fluoresce until around 1964, and I'll, I'll get to that in a couple of minutes. So the menu you, you saw the cover of originally, 
uh, at the beginning of my talk, that one does not fluoresce. People say it does, but trust me, I've tried it with black lights and it does not fluoresce. And you would have been sitting in the dark looking at, seeing nothing, trying to order from the menu back then. Um, and I will show you the inside of that menu in a minute. But um, So back in the different times, I grew up in Iowa City and we'd take the train into Chicago. It was like a four hour train ride, not Amtrak, but back when we had real trains in the 50s and 60s. And um, so uh, one of our, well, we always, we always ate at some nice places. So um, I've dragged my husband Bill around to look at where things used to be. Like we ate in the Palmer House at Trader Vic's and we ate at the Cape Cod Room at the uh, Drake. And, um, and we ate, one memorable year we ate, my sister and I came with my folks and we ate at the Walnut Room at Marshall Fields under the Christmas tree. I'm sure most of you remember that. But what I remember most distinctly about that wasn't that the food was that interesting under Marshall Fields' Christmas tree, but my, they made it, the line was hugely long, and we were children, and my sister fainted because we waited in line so long, so they moved us to the head of the line. My sister doesn't remember it, but I do. And I think um, that uh, dining in Chicago has always got some sort of interesting facet to it. But uh, in, the, in 1961, my parents, I think, ate at the Well of the Sea for the first time. We kind of went through my mother's diaries for looking for entries about that. But it was more in the mid-60s that when I came into Chicago, um, I ate there. And I do not remember what I ate, like I said, and I don't remember um, some various things about it. I remember the undersea murals, but I don't remember that they were abstract. I don't remember the dish, the actual silver, uh, dinnerware. Um, but I think at the time, abstract wasn't weird, okay? It wasn't a nostalgic looking back on abstract things. It's what things were. And so it didn't, it, it didn't do one thing, you know, it didn't stick in my brain as something uh, memorable. The black light stuck in my mind, and I still remember what I was wearing, even though it was, you know, more than 50 years ago, um, because my dress had little white flowers on it and white rickrack, and everything white glowed in the dark. The waiters were all black. Their, whatever was white on their uniforms glowed. Uh, various other things glowed. And I think I even found uh, in my research that somebody said one of the bad things about black lights in a restaurant is that if you have dentures, your dentures glow in the dark. So there's, <laughs> there's the upside. The whole experience was to make you feel like you were dining under the sea. It was the entire environmental thing. And I hope when I show you a few more images that that you'll feel kind of transported back in time for that. Um, there's another person who remembered eating in the well of the sea, and I'm going to tell you what this person said. I don't know if it was male or female. The place I considered to be the coolest restaurant in the world was the well of the sea in the basement of the Sherman House Hotel. The restaurant was very dark. Most of the illumination was from ambient light coming from deep aquamarine lights along the wall in which were displayed sea-related items, nets, hooks, anchors, etc. All of the servers were black men who dressed in white waistcoats. The service was impeccable. I remember eating there one New Year's Eve when my parents were out at a party with friends and they were eight years old and they remember it. So I'm not going to show you the front of the dinnerware yet, but um, the back of the dinnerware told all you really know, need to know about the well of the sea, who was responsible for establishing the, the idea of it, which was Ernie Byfield, the Chicago restaurateur, which I'll talk about next, um, who, who designed the murals inside the well of the sea, who was the architect and interior designer, which was uh, Robert Letterer, and I'll be talking about all of them um, briefly uh, kind of in order here, but that's a back stamp on some rare dishes. There's, um, 
Um, a person who's not here today, so I won't give her name because I don't have her permission. She knows with uh, Richard Copy's estate that there were 12 chargers, uh, larger dinner plate things that had this. And I have one in our collection at the museum that has this back stamp on them, but they're not the, the everyday uh, dishes say Shenango China on them. They don't say all that on it. So this is the only photo I could find of Ernie Byfield, though probably if I went through the Chicago Tribune, I'd see lots of them. But he's given credit, and he should be given credit, for creating the Well of the Sea concept and restaurant. He was born in Chicago in 1889. His father purchased the Sherman Hotel in 1901, and he joined him as, as a manager there. And then when his father died in 1926, he took over running the Sherman House. He was a notable hotelier and restaurateur from the 1930s to the early 1950s when he died. Um, he's best known for the establishment and running of the Pump Room and the Ambassador East. That's the one that all the movie stars and celebrities went to. And some people don't know a thing that, that he had anything to do with the Sherman House. So he's considered the founder and host. Those are the terms. And then he had, there's a book that uh, he had some great quotes in. And, and he said uh, about the role of the hotel man. And this is what uh, Ernie Byfield said. A hotel man must be a master of opposites. He needs to be a greeter and bouncer, pious but ribald, an interior decorator and bartender. He must understand the arrangement of flowers and the disposal of garbage. He may be forced into acquaintanceship with accouchement and embalming. He should appreciate swing music but encourage quiet. He should be noted as a connoisseur and competent as a plumber. He must walk with beauty, but only walk with it. Only a man of very loose moral character should accept the job. So that's what he thought about himself, I guess. Anyway, so the Well of the Sea opened on New Year's Eve on, in December 1948, and the first dinner party was actually hosted by him for his family and friends. And that was the article in the Today with Woman in the Chicago Tribune. She said in the article, Boulebes, Ristoffelas seafood with colored rice, cafe diable, and flaming rum punch are included on the interesting supper menu at the seafood room, the Well of the Sea, and the Sherman Hotel. And then in uh, Interiors magazine, there was a description about Byfield as a gentleman whose name stands for colorful hospitality and astute hotel management. And I think the, the most interesting I found, other than it was sad that he died in 1950 uh, from a heart ailment, so that's right after, a couple years after this opened, but he was held in such high regard in Chicago that his obituary was on the, on the front page of the Chicago Tribune, and his funeral was attended by Bogey and Bacall. So I don't think that's, now I never heard of him before this, but now that, that tells me something more. So the next person I want to talk about, and I only have a really awful little image of him. So any of you that have better pictures, so I've, I've stuck his head up in the corner here. He's the man who was the architect and interior designer. He was an architect kind of turned interior designer who did all, all of the layout and arrangements, working with Richard Copy, who was the muralist, um, and with Ernie Byfield. They were all involved in, in every bit of the process. So this is Robert Lederer, and um, he was born in Austria in uh, 1900, and there's kind of an interesting story, which I'll try to abbreviate, about how Ernie Byfield heard about this Lederer gentleman, 
And it was because he got a subscription to Interiors magazine in 1949, and there was an article about Lederer who had designed the Roberts American Restaurant in Berlin. And a lot of his Hollywood friends had gone there, Byfield's Hollywood friends had gone there. So um, he was interested in, in the, some of the uh, uh, little details in Robert's American restaurant. And he contacted, he found out Letterer had moved to Chicago. And so he contacted him and talked to him about this project. So Letterer, who, like I said, was an architect who turned to designing modern interiors, is described as creating one of the world's darkest restaurants. And he said, not dingy, but dark in a spectacular way. The Desert Sun reported that the Well of the Sea was an ultra-swank seafood emporium illuminated by black light. And Letter himself said, it can be quoted as saying, people are jaded, you must shock them. Otherwise, they won't notice. He said his, his most objective critic is the cash register. I love that. I mean, if you're not making money, you're not, or if you are making money, you're successful. And he said, dark restaurants and cocktail lounges are economical to maintain. Seldom must you replace the carpet. <laughs> so that's all my humor in this entire talk here. So in um, May of 1949, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time, I'm going to show you more pictures of the interior. They're all black and white. But they're all from this time period, from like 49 and 50. There's, other than that one early photograph of the guy with the flashlight, everything else is early. So this was like a big deal. It's in all the architectural magazines. There's uh, uh, nearly 20 photographs of the interiors showing all of the murals and the sculpture and things like that. So it was, uh, it was not a minor thing at the time. It was a... Uh, a major happening in Chicago. So um, some other, I'm gonna skip over some little details here, but um, so one thing I found just about two weeks ago was there was an architect roster questionnaire that Letterer filled out in 1953. He worked on, and those of you who like uh, mid-century modern and abstract things, uh, he worked with Albert Kahn on the Willow Run bomber plant in 1942. And he also worked with Raymond Lowy in 1945 at, I don't know if it's Smith or Smythe Furniture Company? Smythe Furniture Company, thank you. And then he worked on the Hotel Sherman project. This, he filled this out himself, so I'm not making this up. And I know money was worth different back in, uh, in 1947 to 40, 52. So from 47 to 52, he worked on the Hotel Sherman, and he made $2,000. Okay, that seems like, a, even though I know 2000 was a lot, it still seems like not enough for that much work. And then he died in 1960, so, um, so that means he was only 60 because he was born in 1900. Okay, now we're going to actually look at a menu where uh, the cover that we saw before, which has um, actually got the signature of the uh, painter on it, but I'll tell you right now that he didn't actually paint the murals on the walls. There's another gentleman who did that. So he did the paintings to scale, and then a person who, a, a muralist who does that, transferred copies, paintings to the walls. I don't know if Copy went over and signed it. I assume he did. But, um, but that interested me. So I always think, well, the artist did that, but they actually did not in this case. And uh, the person who did that also did the murals in the Palmer House and things, which I'll get to. Okay, so I'm sure you can read this, because I can't even standing here. Um, 
But anyway, this is the inside of a menu. So some of the menus, they come up on eBay occasionally, and this one's dated 9-21-50. And the menus actually are important for lots of reasons because they give information about the Hotel Sherman and the Well of the Sea. They actually have a little synopsis in various places. And the menus are, are funnier than I am ever. Okay, the descriptions of various food items that are available, which we'll go into a couple of them, are, are memorable. And, um, and I found, before I even had bought my first menu for the Dinnerware Museum, um, I found in 1949, or excuse me, a 1949 menu in the Chicago History Museum, so I'm not the only one besides all the people that are bidding against me when I try to get a menu. Um, and the reason to buy several menus is not because you want a whole bunch of the same thing. What you want is other ones that, where the price is going up incrementally, so you can see kind of how the, the food food dollars uh, increased. And you can tell how old the menu is. Like, if I know this one's 50, then I can follow after that, because they, they're in. So what's the most expensive thing on this menu? Oh, I can't answer that. Uh, I mean, what's the price ranges on there? 450 at the top. Oh, that's why. Yeah, most things are. Are, don't seem very expensive, but we'll come back to this at the end and you can come up close and look at it. That's a good question. I didn't. The Luca Caviar with Linny was $5.95. Do you think you got a whole lot of it? Oh, you never do. It's always sold. Yeah, but can you read it back there, Barbara? No. Anyway, I'll, I'll put it back up at the end and we can look at it. And I have some other ones, some of the fluorescing ones that we can look at too. Um, so. A later menu, this was a detail, this one's easier to read. Um, so this one has slightly elevated prices from that first one. Um, but what I want you to pay attention to, though I guess you want to look at the food and the prices, is the fish eating fish eating fish. And this is significant because this is um, uh, um, not a reminiscent of, but it's showing you the sculpture, and this is an actual sculpture. Richard Copy did a number of things besides the murals in the Well of the Sea, including the sculpture of the fish eating fish, eating fish, which is uh, on the menu, which I think is a really beautiful image. And so this is a detail of uh, just one of the items you could get. And this one d does tell you how inexpensive some things looked at this time. And I learned from uh, Peter Engler. Is he here? Mm -hmm. Peter Engler. Hi, Peter. Um, that there's more than one recipe from the Well of the Sea that was actually published. And there's not very many. What, two we have now? <laughs> two. So. Um, I think you actually, Kathy, did you make? I made, the, I made Mr. Flood's black clam. Yeah, so you're all going to get to taste that today. Um, anyway, I learned just recently again, as, because that's why I'm never going to publish this, because I keep learning something all the time from either somebody or something I read. Um, but I learned that, that old Mr. Flood wasn't just a, a funny name that came from nowhere, but it was actually a character created by uh, Joseph Mitchell, and it was a, in a series of stories in The New Yorker in the 1930s and the 1940s. I've gone back now. I brought with me on the trip, but I haven't sat down and read it yet, but I brought, uh, brought with me the Mr. F old Mr. Mr. Flood's party, 
And um, it turns out when we were looking up more information about this, there was actually a bar in Ann Arbor uh, in the 70s called Old, Old Mr. Flood's Party or something. So apparently, this you may have all heard of Old Mr. Flood, but I had not before I encountered the menus. Um, but the recipe was uh, published in 1949, uh, and thank you, Peter, for the information about this. Um, his his Mis Old Mr. Flood's Black Clam Chowder in the unusual collection of cooking recipes with a jug of wine by the well-known food critic critic Morrison Wood. And then uh, he also said some interesting things about Ernie Byfield and the Well of the Sea. He said, uh, this is Morrison Wood, Ernest Byfield, Chicago's well-known gourmet, bon vivant, and witty Boniface, wasn't satisfied with creating the pump room at the Ambassador East where almost any and every day movie celebrities are as common as the flaming swords of food carried by waiters. So he created another unique spot in the Hotel Sherman, which he calls the Well of the Sea, which is a marine world of make-believe at the bottom of the sea. The room boasts that you can order almost any seafood dish imaginable, including a number of exclusive items which are not available anywhere else in the city. And I would get, guess old Mr. Flood's uh, uh, black clam chowder would be there. Uh, the one I found earlier was in the, uh, oh, and that was also published in the Chicago Tribune on May 7th, 1954. And then the Ford Treasury of Favorite Recipes from Famous Eating Places, that's just a great title for a book anyway, um, from 1959 has this page out of it, which is, uh, this is from the 1950 edition of it, and it has his um, Ernie Byfield's favorite crab meat dish prepared with butter, tarragon wine, vinegar, and chives, and so this is the uh, crab meat in skillet which when I gave this talk to the culinary historians of Ann Arbor, I was thinking about making that, and I thought, well, that's one, I can't afford to do that, and two, that would be highly impractical. Too. How many skillets uh, do, do I own, and could everyone bring their own or something? Um, but on one of the menus, it was listed as selling for $3.10 around 1950. And they, this is where I read that they said, if you don't care for seafood, they'll bring you something from the collagen porterhouse a la carte menu. Um, and I don't know that I did that, but um, um, my parents love seafood, so. And then some of the descriptions in the menus are, are memorable. And this is actually the one that fluoresces here. I'm not going to go through all of them, but if you know the writings of A.J. Liebling, he did a 1952 article in The New Yorker that describes uh, the Bahama conch chowder and with Barbados rum that's supposedly the fav favorite soup of Ernest Hemingway believed by the natives of the Bahama Islands to promote virility and longevity. That's on the menu. Every menu says that, whether it's an old menu or a new one. Um, and then in the 1960s, when they allowed them to fluoresce, I don't think they're as interesting looking, but they do fluoresce under black light. But the descriptions are pretty similar, and that's really fuzzy looking. But and if we were in town and I wasn't traveling by train, I would have brought all the menus with me so you could, could handle them. And then they give a description and a history. And you know these are used menus because they've got like greasy fish sauce and, and stuff like that on them. The other thing that I think it was Peter, again, who helped me with this, but there are wonderful advertisements that were in the Chicago Tribune. Um, 
So I don't think I have to read you anything more about this one. So this is 1967, but an earlier one is funnier, and I'll read you what it says, um, because it might be hard to read. Every crab allowed in our kitchens must be extraordinary. First, he must be a genuine Maryland crab. Second, he must be proud, prim, and plump. Third, he must be fresh, practically dripping with the salt water of Maryland's eastern shore. Truly, he is the envy of ordinary crabs who couldn't even buy their way into the succulent seafood delicacies for which the well of the sea, sea world is, fam- is world famous. So, so they're, all, they're quite boasty about uh, how wonderful everything they do is. And then this is uh, one of the photographs I found within that first photograph I showed you of the interior of the Well of the Sea. I have no idea who these ladies were. I'm guessing because I have no photos of the annex. So after the Well of the Sea opened, it was so busy that immediately when it was barely open, they put the annex on. And I'm guessing by the background that that's where these women are. Uh, These gentlemen, it's more clear that they're actually in the main part of the restaurant. And uh, I don't, this is undated also, but an, another thing I found uh, from the Well of the Sea. So it, it wasn't a review of the time. There weren't actually a whole lot of reviews of the Well of the Sea at the time, but people made comments about them uh, more than reviews. And they were kind of a mixed bag. It wasn't like everybody loved the Well of the Sea. Some people thought there were detrimental things about it or annoying things. So uh, in 1949, Jimmy Savage wrote in Tower Ticker column in the Chicago Tribune, Visiting, oh, this one is a good one. One more joke here. Visiting Shriners so overwhelmed the Sherman's Well of the Sea Grotto that service was temporarily disrupted. A delegation seeing host Ernest Byfield also waiting for his dinner demanded to know what was holding up their lobster Newburgh orders. Byfield diplomatically placated the group with, because our lobster Newburgh is so delicious, our chefs are reluctant to part with it. That's why, he, that's why he ran uh, hotels and things, I guess. So another view of the Well of the Sea, and um, I'm going to tell you a li- just in a minute about like, who did everything. But most of the sculpture, the murals, um, and, and wall hangings and things were all designed by Richard Coppe. His name is K-O-P-P-E, but it's pronounced Coppe. And one person who wrote about the thing titled their article, Good Coppe, Somebody in the, yeah, so not so, bad pun, uh, but, but good copy. So, but the most intriguing thing for me was the black lights, and they were supposed to give you with all the abstract designs, the sculpture, the murals that you were surrounded by, the bar, which we'll look more at, which was uh, wonderful, uh, translucent or plexiglass uh, times, kinds of forms. I'm not sure it was plexiglass back then, but, um, but you'll, you can draw your own conclusions. But the black lights kind of enhanced your idea that you were dining under the sea with all the undersea murals. And the murals varied a lot, and we'll look at how different they were. Some were more abstracted, and some were more uh, kind of monster-shaped things. So uh, the menus fluoresced after the mid-60s, but before that, um, everything else really did. All the customers' clothing and, and, uh, and their false teeth and everything else. Um, <laughs> So it was in 1964 that Gerald Kaufman took over as general manager of the Hotel Sherman, and one of the main things he did was make the the menus fluoresce at the time. So another view of the the, uh, undersea world of the Well of the Sea. 
So in uh, 1968, Kay Loring made some positive comments about Mr. Flood's black clam chowder, the Dover sole, and uh, some other dishes. She raved about the chef, the head waiters, and various people. And she said, um, purple lights in the Sherman House well of the sea give a luminous glow to the waiters' uniforms and to much of the decor meant to create the illusion of eating underwater. A martini helps with the illusion. <laughs> and then a more genteel reviewer, John Drury, wrote in 1953 that the Well of the Sea was a dim, marine-like dining room with almost as many types of fish painted on its walls as are served from its ample menus. And the person I wanted to mention, even though I don't really have a picture, but we'll go on to another picture anyway, um, this, so this is the bar, which was meant to be kind of skeletal, uh, either a whale or parts of a ship. I, I don't know what imagination you have, but <laughs> I do not remember this, okay, but I'm sure as a, an underage person I wasn't allowed near the bar anyway. Um, but uh, in 1960s, there was a physician named John Ott, and this is one of the earliest things I found out that I thought was bizarre about the Well of the Sea. He was intrigued with the idea that plants and animals benefited from exposure to ultraviolet light, and he published in 1973 a uh, book called Health and Light, and he uh, has this little excerpt about the well of the sea. As I did not want to give the living animals too much ultraviolet to start with, I was not certain just what intensity would be within a safe limit. Well, in the process of trying to decide how much ultraviolet to give the animals, my wife and I had dinner one evening in a restaurant known as Well of the Sea. Is it coincidence? I don't know. It was in the basement of the Hotel Sherman. As soon as we entered the restaurant, I noticed that there were black ultraviolet lights placed throughout the restaurant on the ceiling. Uh, they'd installed for ornamental purposes solely, and then he talked about the waiters' uniforms and the menus, because he ate there after the menus fluoresced. The next morning, he went back to the restaurant with a meter to measure the intensity of the ultraviolet rays. He check, checked it in every which way. He interviewed the captain of the waiters about whether or not there was a high turnover among the personnel and if there were any physical ailments, eye ailments, ca skin cancer, uh, sterility, whatever happened that might be blamed on being under the ultraviolet lights for that long. The captain told him that essentially the same group of men had been working for him at the Well of the Sea for 18 years and that the group also seemed to have less health issues than the other employees of the Hotel Sherman. So this doesn't, I'm not concluding anything and, and he doesn't really, he actually concludes briefly that uh, natural light is good for you, okay? <laughs> I don't, he doesn't really conclude that Well of the Sea was one thing or the other, but I just thought it was interesting that this played into his, uh, his research as a physician. Excuse me, what's on the tables? Is that a... Uh, oh, yeah. Um, no matter what you look at, you can never see everything clearly, but there's these weird, um, I've heard them referred to, but not in writing, as jellyfish. They're like plexiglass forms, and when we did an exhibit in Ann Arbor uh, with a little vignette I'll show you at the end uh, with the Well of the Sea, we had an acrylic artist try to make us one. We gave him photographs. He didn't do as good a job as whoever created these jellyfish things. They're not really, there's, there's more plexi-acrylic work in the well of the sea, but although they mentioned everybody who did the linoleum, who did whatever, um, this isn't really mentioned. Uh, and nobody has one that has popped up bragging about it on uh, you know, Flickr or 
<laughs> or eBay or any place and that I've is seen. Is that acrylic chairs too? No, that's one of those in the foreground. Oh, okay. No, the chairs are regular, regular chairs from 1948. But you're very observant. <laughs> okay, and then um, here, Richard Copy wrote a lot about his own stuff. Um, he was an artist, and and he had lots to say about his murals. So in 1952, he wrote an article that was in Art and Modern Architecture. And he's quoted, and I won't quote him a whole lot because we would be here for several days, but he tells you exactly what he designed, okay? So all the people that speculate he did this or that, he didn't. He did what I'm telling you here, and, but he, he, other people based their things on his designs, but he didn't do everything. I designed five painted murals, three lighted murals, a hanging wire fish, formica tabletops, a figurehead of edge-lighted plastic form shaped like the skeletal ribs of a ship for the bar, ceiling light shades and two large murals for the Well of the Sea Annex. So, and what he did was amazing. I mean, I, I don't know what he knew, but he determined the positioning of all the elements in the room. So when you entered the room, what you would see from every angle as you came in, when you were seated with the poles, what would be blocked, what you could see. He wanted you to feel like you were completely immersed under the sea and in that environment. So he wanted you totally, you know, in the moment right there. So, and that's what fascinated me the most about what he created, that it was a whole environment as opposed to a, you know, a mural or a this or a that or something. And there was even a, a student in, in 2009 who wrote their master's thesis at Cornell about restaurant in types, contemporary interior design and theory study. Uh, she noted that in 1970s that the that landscape murals in restaurants were really popular, and she cites the Well of the Sea as a place that that has uh, seating and and murals nearby, and and uses it in a, as an example. Even though these were abstract, and quite often the landscape forms, which they even had in the Hotel Sherman, um, were uh, abstract instead of uh, uh, direct pictorial images. So now to Richard Copy for a couple of minutes. So this is about the only image I could find of Richard Copy, who was born in St. Paul, Minnesota in 1916 and died in 1973. He's been described, and probably by himself, as an artist, designer, educator, painter, and sculptor. So most of the things I have to say about him were written by him. Um, so I figure they're quite accurate. He, his archives are at the Illinois Institute of Technology in Chicago, and there's also extensive archives at Syracuse University, which he donated in 1965, the Richard Copy Painting and Manuscript Collection at Syracuse. And a lot of the research, although I've not been to either place in person, is from these various archives. Um, and then I could go on for days talking about every place uh, that he exhibited and who owns his work, but think of every famous museum and place you know, and and that's where they were. Exhibits in France and Germany and Holland and all over the US. He studied with Laszlo Mali Nagy and Alexander Archipenko at the new Bauhaus in the late 1930s. He was head of the visual arts and, and design at the Institute of Design ID at the Illinois Institute of Technology and professor there at the Chicago Circle Campus. He taught painting in the Department of Art in the College of Architecture and Art. Um, 
I don't know if you know this, but you know, if you go to publish something it's, and it's somebody owns that painting, they charge you a huge amount of money to do it. So I only bought one painting from the Syracuse archive that I, could, that I can actually publish. And what I did was look for a painting that reminded me, and there were tons of them, that reminded me that dated right before 19, the 1948-ish era of when Richard Copy did all the murals for The Well of the Sea. Um, and there were too many. I have lots of images, but I'm unfortunately not allowed to show them to you. Um, but if you go online, you can see more of his, his work, but it's all related. And, and this is a cover from, or actually a postcard cover from a show he had in the Well of the Sea, which had its own gallery. And at one time he showed also with his wife, who used to be a student of his, and they were married in the 50s. I think her name was Catherine um, Hinkle, Catherine Hinkle. So, he was not only shown everywhere, but he was shown uh, right where he did all his work. He always cited after the, he did the Well of the Sea, it was always in his list of accomplishments and stuff. He was very proud of what he did for the Well of the Sea. So um, I'm not going to go through, like I said, his work is in the Whitney, the Art Institute of Chicago, the Brooklyn Museum, the Kalamazoo Institute of Arts. Um, he's had major shows at the Elmhurst Art Museum in, in 2015. Lots of people have had lots of things to, to say about Richard Copy. And um, if you, I have some propaganda in the back which actually gives you my email and the information about my museum. So if you're interested in finding out when this is ever published and you can just go get a copy of it, um, you could take one of the cards that are on by the, the table by the food back there and that'll keep you in touch rather than me going through all of this now. Um, so I more want to show you images, and this is the one off the menu in the photos. So uh, one of the uh, reviewers said, it was evident that a rare collaboration between artist, designer, and architect had taken place. Even the menu carries out the theme in large, varnished, smooth reproduction of one of the skeletal fish decorations. And they said, they reminded us that five painted murals, three aluminum cutout murals, and some hanging wire fish are part of his contribution to architect Robert Letterer's plan and layout. If there's anything I would like to go back and see at the restaurant, the bar is one of the things I would really like to be able to, to actually go back and see in person myself. So in a 1949 review, this is the one called Good Copy, K-O-P-P-E, uh, famous for his surrealist murals and decor of the Well of the Sea, Richard Copy is returning to the scene of his triumph with a one-man show of his latest paintings, drawings, and constructions in the Sherman Hotel this month. And what they, this artist or this writer mentions is that when he was doing all of these abstracted things for the Well of the Sea, he was actually living in a Victorian mansion with kind of you know velour, velvety wallpaper with roses on it and stuff. And she was asking him how he could possibly concentrate on abstraction when he was living in such a place. And and I think he had a reply to that. I think it was just that uh, I just concentrated on being abstract. <laughs> so, just what you might expect. So, blown up bigger than life. So, um, a gentleman who's a, a mid-century modern glassware specialist 
uh, brought to my attention, because I sent him all these photographs from the inside of the restaurant, we were trying to figure out what, what, uh, what the other things that were used in the restaurant were all about. And the, uh, the, the goblet turns out to be something anybody could have bought anywhere that aren't terribly valuable, uh, these Libby glasses, but it was identified through all, a lot of different photographs. And that was uh, Scott Hamblin identified that for me. So the other thing I'm showing here, and we have like a world's flatware expert here. Um, I don't know what flatware was used in it, but this is Sherman House. It says so on the backs of everything. They've got the crest on it, but this is the flatware. This is actually my favorite plate, dinnerware plate with the Well of the Sea logo on it. I love the layout of it, the, where the decals are placed, and. Um, and unfortunately, when I did this photo, we didn't have any seafood in the house, so that's like chicken something or other. Um, but I love that plate. And actually, uh, one of the things I'd like to do more often, like uh, as a, an art, a ceramic historian, I'd like to more often show pictures of the dinnerware with food on it, as a po maybe a, the more appropriate food, but because I think it makes it more interesting. It makes you know whether or not the dishes actually were something that would look good with food on it. In this case, you can... You can tell they clearly were. Um, so we're back to the, the menu here. So we know from uh, Richard Copy's writings and papers where, every, where everything was positioned on the various walls of the building. We know from all his contractual things, because those are known documents, uh, what scale he designed everything so it could be placed in various places. It's kind of hard to tell exactly how that translates. Um, we've tried hard to figure that out, but um, these are the murals. They were all published in, in Art and Architecture and, uh, and all laid out really beautifully. And then there was one color fold-out, which is exactly the same thing that's on the, the menu cover. So, and my husband did a little reconstruction. We tried to do a little maquette of what the room looked like, where the murals were and, and stuff. It, it wasn't so handsome that we decided we needed to photograph it and share it with you, um, but we did try. But it's nice that the documentation is there, so if we can't all go back there, we can at least appreciate what the, what the room, the surroundings look like. But he, he had every detail down about how large and where everything was going to be installed and the linear placement of things. And um, he described the murals. Murals have an underwater theme. Lures, bait, fish, and undersea life became the individual elements. Where such realistic elements as the fish appear, they are not a stylization of fish, but grow out of an abstract structure. The light panels were designed to work with the light as an element in a room predominantly lit in atmosphere and that span undesirable wall columns. The monster theme, which I think I showed earlier, which are kind of these floating blobby things, were suggested by Mr. Byfield. The room was so successful that the annex was, was built immediately to accommodate the overthrow. Okay, and so one of the things, of course, that interested me the most is uh, the dinnerware, which we're <laughs> going to get to in a moment. But the other documentation we have, besides the uh, pictures that were reproduced in these architectural journals, are little ephemera things, the matchbook covers that have the same images from the menu. And this is another matchbook cover on the right here with a blow-up of some artist's interpretation of what that skeletal bar looked like. 
I don't think they quite got it, but um, and the fish look a bit, a bit more real than Copy probably thought. Another version of with the well of the sea on it. As I was telling somebody earlier, that the only thing I haven't sunk to the level of is to buy a well of the sea plastic green swizzle stick, which they sell on eBay. It's like somebody can give me one and I'll take it, but it doesn't really give you more information other than they serve drinks. Um, and I think we already guessed that. So, yeah, that's more the monster kind of image that I guess Byfield suggested, the, as opposed to the fish. Okay, now we're to my favorite part of. Uh, which is getting here towards the end. So what I want to impress on you all is in nowhere in all the, I'll make a bad pun, the copious uh, materials from, from copy are, is information about him designing the dinnerware. He did not design the dinnerware. The person who designed the dinnerware looked at Richard Copy's murals and did the decals for the dinnerware at Shenango, China. Uh, that person was discovered by Michael Pratt, who's written all the fantastic books about mid-century modern dinnerware. He actually talked to uh, Paul W. Cook, who was uh, long retired from Shenango, China, and I'll be talking about him in a minute, um, where he got verification, or was actually told that he had done the, the dinnerware. He was the head designer at Shenango at that time. So this is the current group we have minus, or yeah, minus this piece, which I didn't put in the photo. It's of the same date, so all of the pieces that are in here date between, uh, well, they actually date between when the dinnerware was first made, which was not when the restaurant opened. It uh, appeared of first, the first backstamp, I have the earliest backstamp anybody's told me, shown me, okay, not told me about, but shown me, is from 1954. And so 1954 up through 1972 when the restaurant was running. So all of these have back stamps that correspond to the Shenango China back stamps. Um, one person did say in a, a little thing that's on that you can find on the internet said that the earliest date was 1953, but when I tried to contact them, I got no proof that they actually owned a piece that had a 1953 back stamp um, for Shenango on it. So, I showed you that. I don't really know where this scalloped. I mean, it's the right date, and um, they could have used it. Just because I have them and they're from the right date doesn't mean they ever touched the well of the sea. Okay, we all know that, but, um, but at least there's a remote possibility. So this is a good image. This was the image of this man who was an undated photo I got from the Lawrence County Historical Society. Um, Apparently I can't type either, but um, his daughter confirmed that this was him because it didn't say who this person was in the photograph. So I got in contact with his daughter through trying to, this, this is a fun part of research when you're trying to track down somebody who you don't know if they've passed away. And so the assisted living place that I kept calling and persisted, I finally got somebody who told me, first they said he left. And I thought, well, did he leave because he checked out? Or did he leave because he's gone? And um, I finally got somebody on the phone when I called back too many times who said that he'd actually had passed away and gave me information. You should never give a complete stranger over the phone. She gave me the daughter's name and phone number, told me where they lived. And so I contacted the daughter. So I was lucky there and was able to send her. She'd never seen this photo. so. Um, but she confirmed that it was her father. 
So it's, that's the kind of fun part about, about doing research. And I've already lost where I'm telling you things. But um, actually, I think I'll tell you a little bit about Paul Cook here. Thank you. We've even been called Dishorama, okay? We're, we'll go by any name. Um, we're in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So, and we can be bought. So if we find a really great place with, with somebody who's got bazillions of dollars and they want to help us build a building, uh, we could possibly move there because we've been doing pop-up shows for seven years and um, we have more than 8,000 things and we'd be happy to get a, a permanent home with a, a brick-and-mortar place that we can call our own. So... Um, but thank you for the question. Uh, Paul W. Cook was born in uh, 1924, died in 19, or excuse me, 2016. He graduated in June 1946 with a BFA in industrial ceramic design from New York State College of Ceramics at Alfred University. Um, and in his class, other people that might be here that like uh, mid-century modern and collect glass would like his uh, classmate, Winslow Anderson, who was one of the best known designers at Blanco Glass was his classmate at Alfred. He was an industrial designer, um, excuse me, so I'm going back to who uh, uh, Paul Cook studied with. So Don Schreckengoss and Charles Harder would have been his teachers at Alfred. And he, they did field trips from Alfred where they went to East Liverpool, Ohio, and other major ceramic manufacturing areas. And apparently they visited the area around Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania when he was a student at Alfred. And apparently, uh, according to something he wrote, that Paul Cook wrote, he hitchhiked to Newcastle, Pennsylvania right after graduating and was hired at Shenango, China on the spot. So that would have been in 1946. He worked there for 25 years from 46 to the early 70s. And then he worked as a designer at Sterling, China for another 15 years after that. And here's an uh, aerial view of uh, Shenango, China. Uh, which now is, you can't go in it, it's closed. And um, Paul Cook describes it, the building was a mile long, all of it necessary to contain kiln furniture, modeling and molding departments, Jiggerman and the five kilns that ran 24 hours a day. And my husband over there in the blue shirt, who also worked at Shenango, China, but later than, he's not as, as old as Paul Cook was, um, he said the building was like a third of a mile long or something. It was too long, okay? If you had to go from doing one thing at one end of the building to the other, it was too long, but it wasn't a mile long. So, um, and then uh, Shenango, China is known for lots of different things they did. One of the uh, two things they did that I'll mention are the uh, Havlin, Theodore Havlin Company from 1936 to 58. They did the China for them. And then... Uh, Castleton Museum Shape, the one that Eva Zeisel designed. Uh, they produced that at Ca because they owned Castleton China at the time, so that was probably their most famous, famous product from Shenango, uh, China. So there's two pages that I know about, and if somebody knows of more, I'd be happy if you came up and told me afterwards and showed me what you have. But these are actually marketing uh, papers from Shenango, China. It's undated, but uh, circa 1953. This is, uh, these are found in the Lawrence County Historical Society collection in Newcastle, Pennsylvania. These show uh, an ad, a marketing ad for the Well of the Sea, and it tells you that they have permission to have other, uh, have other restaurants use the same pattern. And as you know, if you know about dinnerware, especially restaurantware, 
the decals were not something sacred by one place. They were passed around, and so lots of different companies. You can find the Well of the Sea decals on Jackson, China. So it would be later than, than the Well of the Sea was running, but the same decals are on there. So the, this is the uh, existing thing that shows the 23 shapes and the white continental shape that, that the Well of the Sea, China, came in though I believe there are other ones, and, uh, and uh, there are other ones. And some of these, I don't know if everybody's found all of them. But anyway, it's a famous uh, kind of simple white body that they put the decals on, and uh, it's got the famous rim roll, which is a patented thing, which made the uh, China, it's restaurant wear, so it's pretty unchippable anyway, but made it less possible to be chipped in any way, shape, or form. And then... Um, He's not here today, so I can mention that this private collector is Michael Pratt, who's, uh, um, he said I could say anything about him because he's not here today. Um, he owns a set of decals, which I think he got at, um, yes, Fish's Eddie in New York. Um, <laughs> thank you. Um, so anyway, the decals actually don't, I was hoping that there would be, some, with the numbers on those would somehow match, match these piece shapes, that they, but they don't. They don't. They have some other meaning that's for the person who's placing the decals to pick from. But it's pretty awesome that he has this framed set. And then just to show you a couple uh, pieces in our collection. So this one has a 1955 back stamp on it. And I'm showing you the color ones, but it's more common that the pieces are, are black and white decals, not with the, the color decals. And I'm not as fussy as some people are about making sure there's no metal marks, that nobody's carved their whatever. Um, but if I were going to let anyone eat off of this, which I won't because it's in the museum's collection, I wouldn't let them eat anything except something mushy that they were doing, using a spoon for or something so they weren't leaving metal marks on it. But I do like the dinnerware. This is the bullion, slightly larger. This is like looking at a Vermeer if you're in an art history class. Here's your Vermeer, and then when you get it, it's just a bouillon cup. And then uh, what a normal back stamp look. And this back stamp corresponds to 1954, July, December 1954. So it's one of the oldest pieces we have in our collection because this is about when I think they started actually making it. And then these are celeries. And remember, this is a restaurant, so these, these are large. These are... Uh, like, I think they're like 10 inches long or something. You wouldn't have had your own individual celery in the restaurant, probably. I don't think there's room for it, so it would have been something you shared. I just happen to have, have three of them, uh, or the museum has three. And this is that plate that had food in it. It's just my favorite forum of these Well of the Sea uh, Shenango China forums, and I just think the placement of the decal is exquisite. And then one thing that the museum doesn't own, but an anonymous collector in Chicago owns, um, are the cream and sugar. I'm hoping that they'll donate them someday. Um, but one thing I found that was interesting when I was searching for the things, here's all the other images I found online of the sugar. And if you'll notice, uh, they all have different lids on the sugar. So I was thinking, well, I know the person who collected this is quite fastidious and they would only collect the one that was correct. So if you look at the, the sugar down there, 
And you go back and look at the one the collector has, so they got the right one. They got the correct lid. I'm not saying they might not have changed the lid at some point, but um, that's how fussy detail um, I find interesting little things. And so one of the other proofs we have of uh, when they first started doing the dinnerware is for this dinnerware that was created uh, by a different company. But once Well of the Sea came out, then there were other companies that, that thought they should have abstract fish on dishes for, for their restaurantware. And so this is from uh, Wallace China Company. The design was by Ann F. Landau. And it's from the mid-50s. It has a patent, which I won't bore you with. But it actually cites the patent for, or it cites the Well of the Sea dinnerware from 1955 as existing before it, that it was based on, or not based on, but it's another one they're looking to. So that gives you the idea that for sure it existed before 1955. So this is uh, that same dinnerware, the Wallace thing, that's some pieces that are in the International Museum of Dinnerware Design. So in. Is that common to patent your um, design of dinnerware? Excuse me? Is that common to patent your dinnerware design? Um, I'm, yeah, for companies, sure. They'll patent anything. Um, yeah, protect it. Doesn't mean somebody else won't use the decals, but it might be the shape they were patenting or something else. But it does cite the des designer, but more often it would be the form of the pieces. And then uh, just to show TEPCO, which you may or may not know about, which is in California, this is their own version of abstract fish restaurant wear. Uh, that's in our collection too. I don't know the date for this one. And then an still another one is this one which has been referred to as, as pink coral that has a back stamp from 57. But I tried to contact the, the, the uh, restaurant in Hawaii that supposedly used this and they could not prove, their history people couldn't prove that, um, that it was actually used in that restaurant. So. That's an unknown. It's nice to know where, where things popped up. And then I'm kind of wrapping it up here, but here's a couple of other mobile. I don't remember what the other one is called. Anybody? <laughs> anyway, so these are little shots of other. So everybody was interested in abstract fish and undersea things at the time. It's a very, not very common, but it is a common thing. So um, wrapping it up here. I would think by 67 or so that Well of the Sea might have pooped out or something, that they weren't so full of themselves. But, um, but if you read this whole thing, they're just bragging about, about the Well of the Sea and how important they are and how, um, see if I can, any town with a world famous seafood restaurant, top supper clubs, three great bars and a reputation as a celebrity's meeting place would, re would really swing and were just a hotel. Uh, excitement, this is the place, a virtual city full under one roof and not by accident, the Sherman House makes it happen. Here you'll find one of the world's great seafood restaurants, the Well of the Sea, 800 miles from salt water. We invented the Supper Club and after 60 years the, Chicago, the College Inn Entertainment is still packing them in. Come put your finger on the pulse of Chicago, have yourself a swing, the Sherman House. So. Um, so they're bragging that they're 800 miles from salt water. Most people don't do that when they're selling sushi or something these days. Um, but I like how they say, in the swinging part of the loop. <laughs>
So we're going back here just because this amuses me so much, but um, I think that the, the reason the well of the sea and interest in it is ongoing is because there are so many aspects that, that appeal to diners, and people that eat, and, uh, and historians and mid-century modern collectors and uh, interior design freaks and architectural people. I, I just think there's every single thing in the story with it. But I wanted to finish with, this isn't something that, that just us old people are interested in. Um, the tattoo on the right, I don't have permission to use, it's from Pinterest, okay? Um, but this person actually Facebooked me these um, from the Well of the Sea. And someone emailed me, somebody who I bought some Well of the Sea from on eBay knew somebody that had a Well of the Sea tattoo on their torso. I asked for a photo, but I've not gotten one. I don't think I will get one. But anyway, I just thought it was interesting that, that uh, and actually when I, I have an intern at the museum this summer and she has some great tattoos. She's like 21 years old, she has some great tattoos. And I showed her this talk before I came here and she was like, oh, maybe I need a well of the sea tattoo. And so the last image I've got to show you is um, one of our shows that had to do with nothing but mid-century modern, looked at the well of the sea. We blew up one of the mural parts for, sorry about that, for um, the vignette and then used some of the well of the sea dinner where I did our own bad example of that, that acrylic jellyfish um, uh, and had a couple of the different menus from the restaurant in 2018. Thank you very much. Yes, Scott? Did it close when they tore it down, or was it closed before? It closed from everything I could find. It closed in 72, and in 73, the Sherman House closed. And then I think it was a while before it was demolished. And from what I gathered yesterday, that maybe the next thing that went up was the Illinois State Building. That, so, yeah, it seems like somebody was having a visual weirdness when they... <laughs> Looked at the old building that came down and the new one. So, so was that, that building, even though you meant, is has, you know, was in the Blues Brothers? There's some really. It, it, no, I did not know that. For Chicagoans, even though I'm not native Chicagoan, that it's building a, is iconic okay. for being the Blues Brothers and other movies. So, and as people are talking about tearing it down, there are people who don't want it torn okay. down and stuff like that. I, as not being a native Chicago, I didn't know about the Sherman House, so now I'm interested in finding about that information. But I'm interested in, was there a movement to have sea, seafood restaurants and hotels like we have the um, Cape Cod Room? Cape Rock in the Drake, and were there other places in Chicago like that, or just these two? Uh, I'm not uh, knowledgeable enough. There was what? The Orson Hotel had the Boston Oyster House. Okay. So, so there was more than these. <laughs> yeah, the Did the murals get saved? Excuse me? Did the murals get saved? The murals get saved. Oh, not that I know of. If somebody has them, they're keeping it a secret. Oh, I forgot to mention the guy um, named Ziegner who did the murals. 
sorry, it's in all this stuff that I didn't that I ignored. Um, he's the one who actually he was a muralist and he actually took copies uh, drawings and and made them into mural scale. But the sad story is when I was researching about him. Um, he died when he was quite young, when he was uh, touching up murals in the Palmer house. He fell off the scaffolding and died. So it's like every story was like a little soap opera of, um, not necessarily good soap opera. So. And did anybody save any of, like, the, the hanging uh... I wish. I don't know. If somebody has them, they're not saying. But people are... If you collect anything, people some people are very secretive about what they have. I had somebody after this went on when it was on Facebook or something. I got contacted by a gentleman. He could be in this room for all I know because I don't know where he lives, but who has a lot of things posted on Flickr, and I've stolen some of his images and things. But I've tried to have a conversation with him. He contacted me about. Where did I get that acrylic thing? So I think he thought I scored a, an original jellyfish from a table or something. And once I said, well, we had that, that bad example created for, for our little vignette, dead silence. So, <laughs> so, so I think people might have more. I mean, Chicago people, I don't live here, so uh, would have much more access to, to things. So, But I appreciate, I don't have to own everything, but I'd like to know you know, if you know something that I don't know, I'd love to have you read the whole thing. I'd email it to you and you could tell me what you know and I'll be talking to the woman in turquoise back here. So, and, so can you tell us about your museum? Is it a, a physical museum or is it what kind of... It, well, it is physical in that we have objects and we're a 501c3, we're tax exempt and it's all prim and proper and all that. Uh, what we don't have is enough money to... We have enough money to do great pop-up shows, we don't have enough money to actually build a building, and Ann Arbor is very expensive, that when everybody else dipped kind of in 08-ish, uh -uh, they, they didn't, they were like Washington, D.C., and, um, and it's impossible to, to purchase things, but our collection uh, isn't just mid-century modern, we collect, what we're here about, is, or they're about, we're all over about, is about dining experiences. So we're for capturing dining memories and those experiences. But I'm interested in not just functional dinnerware. And, and we are the uh, good design. So we try to collect less of grandma's little dishes with little flowers on them. We have some, but less of that. We, things we'd like that we don't have are like seven mice and, and some things like that. But we're international, so we collect... Uh, things from Czechoslovakia and Portugal and uh, China and, and all different places. We also collect fine art that references dining. So we have wire scribble sculpture from contemporary artists in Portugal. We have abstract sculpture from contemporary artists that are, are literally abstract knife, fork, and spoons uh, by well-known artists. And so anything to do with dining. We have Sandy Skoglin uh, large photographs that are of the one that we own is the cocktail party, which is, in, it's big, it's as big as that image there, and it's uh, people that have like Cheetos glued all over them that, that have cocktails, so it's dining. So we're, we have barware, we have flatware, we have paper napkins. We did, a, a, our best show I think we ever did was called Disposable Dinnerware. It was a brief history of uh, disposable, it was called actually unapologetic dinnerware because it dealt with 
disposable-ish things from Mesopotamia, so fourth millennium BC, skip uh, a whole lot of time and you're at mid-century 1950s and we've got TV dinners and things. Not much happened in between looking at things you toss out. Um, and then it took, went up to like edible dinnerware and all the issues about straws. We had every kind of straw you can make straws out of, including straw, um, you know, glass, steel. So we, anything to do with dining, uh, advertisements. Uh, when the fork came out, McDonald's did a fork thing in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. They tested it a couple of years ago. A friend of my husband's who lives in Lancaster queued up at McDonald's to get, they were only doing it for like two days, so got us a fork, which was this god-awful plastic thing with weird advertising all around it uh, that said what a useless thing it was, and you're supposed to stick your french fries in this, these slots, and then you'd sop up the stuff from your sandwich. So trust me, I will collect anything if it's interesting, um, but for my own personal taste, I'll take uh, Art Deco, mid-century modern, and, um, and all that. Yes? I just, uh, while you were talking, I did a little conversion on currency, and um, the uh, $3.10 is equal, in 1950, is equal to $32 in today's time. Wow. So it was, it was a high-class place. Oh, for sure. <laughs> so can you put the money back up? Yes. Mm. So do you work with um, the Smithsonian and, and Cooper, you, you work, or something that some Flatware shows, and, and they had a whole history of flatware exhibit in New York City. Gerald, would you like to address? We don't. We have not done that. That would probably be before our time. But Gerald, who's an expert on flatware, do, do you know about the Cooper Hewitt's flatware? Was that recent? The Cooper Hewitt. Okay, we're only seven years old, so our history is brief. You want the old menu? And $3.10 the, the, $3 was $32.87. What about the $2,000 that he got in 1940? <laughs> now that you're, you're fixing my curiosity here. So I blew up this one, which is slightly later than the first one, because we can actually read this one. $2,000 in 1950 is $21,000. Oh. <coughs> That's not chicken feed. Yes? Okay, uh, uh, just a point where you mentioned the Shriners. On the top of the Sherman House in the later years was a Shriner Lodge, which was the number one most important Shriner Lodge in Chicago. So there's the kind of joke about the Shriners coming down for dinner, because they just had a breakfast. Okay. And then, you didn't mention any of the chefs, but the opening uh, chefs, the executive chef was Arnold Schoenenberger, the sous chef was William Galsey, and actually under the well-of-retrieved kitchen staff, they listed Florian Jansky as cook, and Frank Mayer as the cold meat man, because this would have been a central hotel kitchen, where you could order from almost any menu and then expedite it to the dining rooms. So if anybody who's doing genealogy. That That's awesome. There's another chef that was mentioned, which I won't find. Oh, um, 
1962, the executive chef was Bill Gossy, G-O-S-Y. Um, he's cited by Kay Loring in the Chicago Tribune as the executive chef. And um, Bill Muzakis was the head waiter of the Well of the Sea. She mentions him. I have a lot of details. I yeah, well, William Gossy would have been here. Okay. And the ones that I listen for, the chefs at 48%. Very good, thank you. So, uh, Peter brought a book. Peter, you got something to share. <laughs> well, yeah, I, don't, I don't have a lot to say. Um, but Kathy mentioned she made the. Uh, Old Mr. Flood's black clam chowder. And the recipe, uh, you know, from Well of the Sea, uh, was first published in, uh, by Morrison Wood in the Chicago Tribune, and then uh, later collected in his first book um, with a jug of wine. So I obviously brought the book. You can look at it. There's a little mark. Um, so I don't know. I'm not going to say much about Morrison Wood, but um, he, he worked for the Tribune. I think, he, I think mostly he was a radio producer. That was like his main job. But he had a, a regular column, uh, cooking column, called For Men Only. And uh, that's where the uh, chowder recipe you know, came from. And the other, only other little piece of trivia that I want to mention, so I'm going to you know, pass this around to anybody can look at it. Um, some of you might remember the uh, Treasure Island on Elm that closed, you know, within the last year, about a year ago. And uh, some of you might remember the uh, uh, recipe painted on the window, on the front window. Uh, hamburgers, Walter Trohan. Uh, Trohan was a uh, Tribune uh, reporter, Washington uh, bureau chief. And uh, the recipe, for hamburgers, Walter Trohan, which I've made, <laughs> um, can be found in this book. Very cool. And because I know I, 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 we, have, we don't usually have handouts, but we do today. One is for that crab recipe, and the other one is the column that the uh, chowder recipe was mentioned, as well as the excerpt from the book, which might be a little easier to follow than the so if you like what you taste here, you can go home and make it again. Um, so. With the secret recipe, the, the secret ingredient, I think, being the uh, chili sauce. Oh, okay. We're eager. Thank you so much. Thank you, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. And I think there's a rum cake back there. There's also a rum cake. It was mentioned on the menu and Deb read it. We were debating what to do about the crab. And then I thought, I'll just make the chowder. You make the rum cake, which was on the recipe. It's no recipe that it can be attributed. It's just simply a rum cake. But I'm sure it's a good rum cake, because Deb made it. <laughs> I can't wait. And you can come up and look at this, and we can go back to the, the tinier, blurry one from earlier days, if you want to look at that. So Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thank you.